A number of years ago, I was, uh, well, just a few years ago, uh, came across a book called The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of 1858 by Samuel Prime, and, and uh, I read a reference of it in another book, so I picked up a copy, and it's one of the most captivating yet repetitive books that you will ever read. On the, on the one hand, though, the story is, it would enthrall your imagination to see what God was doing in this story. It's, a, it's just a, a memoir, sort of say, of, of a prayer revival in um, the mid-1800s. In 1857, the Old, Nor- Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Manhattan was struggling, and so they sought to help the ministry, and they hired Jeremy Lanfear, a missionary to the neighborhood. And overwhelmed by his task, Lanfear began to pray, Lord, what, what would you have me do here? And God gave no audible answer. So lacking any better ideas, he decided to advertise a lunchtime prayer during the weekdays in Manhattan. For the first 20 minutes, when he had his first prayer meeting, uh, he prayed by himself. But by the end of the hour, six others had joined him. The next week, 20 gathered for prayer. The next week, 30. Soon the building was filled, and additional churches and even theaters became prayer meeting sites. And the Herald Tribune noted the flood of businessmen streaming into the churches across the city at lunchtime and began publishing a series of stories about the remarkable meetings that were happening in New York. Within six months, 50,000 people met daily for prayer in Manhattan, with similar meetings then sprouting up in Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and Richmond and Savannah. And yet, the book is very repetitive. It's little more than Prime's simple notion of prayers made and responses given. A wife prays for her husband, and he turns up the next day at the meeting, and he's converted. A man prays for his son, who at the very moment is finding salvation in a different city. An Irish Catholic attends, is convicted of his sins, and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then he asks for prayer the next day for his wife, who is similarly converted. A mother asks for prayer for her two distant children. They're drawn that very night to a church where they both come to know Jesus Christ. A man on the verge of murder and suicide even visits a meeting, is saved, The style of the book is anything but gripping. Prime records no emotional appeals. He doesn't talk about sensational preaching. He doesn't even give gimmicks to to how to have a prayer meeting and what to do. At the ring of the the bell at noon, a, a hymn would be sung, requests given and prayers made, and the meeting adjourned precisely at 1 p.m. And in the book, you get this steady cadence of, Prayers made, prayers answered. Prayers made, prayers answered. And that's the book. I don't know if I've given you a good appeal to go buy it. It's repetition throughout. And it might bore you. It would probably bore you to tears unless you're understanding what he's saying. The prayers of his people draw you to the very throne room of throne room of heaven in amazement of God's astounding faithfulness to his people. One of the great movements of prayer in our modern history was this very extreme, ordinary prayer meeting. 
And what we learn as you, as you read through this book is that prayer is an ordinary means to accomplish supernatural ends. And prayer is the thread that weaves through the book of Nehemiah. This morning we begin a series in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, just so you know, is, is not a book to be preached through for a church that wants to build. If you've ever been in a church before where a building campaign starts and they think, let's go to Nehemiah. That's not what the book is about, really. Nehemiah isn't even a book on great leadership, although we will see great leadership in its pages. Ultimately, the book of Nehemiah is a book on the restoration of God's people through a man who is determined to pray. There's no secret formula that's in this book of Nehemiah. There isn't a four-step process to prayer to get what you want from God. No, prayer is, is having communion with God. Prayer is talking to the creator of the universe about the people and circumstances and feelings that you're experiencing in your life right now. And everyone can pray. And Christians in particular should be taken up with prayer. And so I hope as we go through this first chapter this morning that we would be people that would be consumed with the prayer of Nehemiah and learn again of another prayer of God's servant for the good of his people. So here's the main idea that is for this morning's sermon, and I added something. So if you're good at taking notes, you're, the, the, what we have on the screen is not going to be complete. So here's the main idea. God is faithful, and remember the covenant with his people through the prayers of Nehemiah. I threw something extra in there at the end. God is faithful, and remember the covenant with his people through the prayers of Nehemiah. And there's four points as we walk through this. Adoring the greatness of our God, confessing their sins to God, thanking God for his faithfulness, and supplication of his needs to God. As we see that through this prayer of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you haven't turned there, please do. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the seats. We encourage you to, to have that open as we walk through this. Otherwise, you're going to get confused or distracted, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 1, we will read the entire chapter and then we'll launch into these four points this morning. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. The Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had, been, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That is chapter one, and we're going to spend most of our time this morning in the prayer of Nehemiah because in this prayer we see a pattern that I believe is very helpful for the Christian this prayer falls into that natural outline that you've heard before that I did not invent myself. It's ACTS, A-C-T-S. Do you see it there even in my outline? Adoration, confession, thankfulness, and supplication. I think we see that here in Nehemiah's prayer. And, and his prayer is a style of lamentation on behalf of the people of God and what they're suffering. And, and Nehemiah doesn't pray as one who is separate from his people, but there is a, a union with them in their needs. And so those first four verses set up for what's going on and, and what Nehemiah is going to seek to do for his people. And, and they serve really as the introduction for the book as a whole. So let me briefly give you some history to set the scene on where we're, where we're coming here in this book. The one date that needs to be remembered more than any other is 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple, and took the people into exile. God had warned his people, especially through Isaiah, that their persistent disobedience would bring this judgment upon them. But God, in sheer grace, said that he would restore his people, and in 539 BC, Cyrus, the Persian king, became God's instrument to bring this about. The people returned under Cyrus's decree, but never in the hope for numbers. After a delay, the temple was rebuilt, but it never recaptured the glory of Solomon's temple. And now the year is 446 B.C. We come to that in Nehemiah 1.1, 22 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem. And previous attempts to rebuild the wall and restore the fortunes of Jerusalem had come to nothing. And so now we, we come to this section here, and Hanani comes with the news, the brother of Nehemiah, that God's people who had survived the exile that they're in trouble. They're, they're living in shame because the wall hasn't been built back. And, and a wall for a city for people was the first line of defense. And they're left open to threats and, and safety is now out of their grasp. And so Nehemiah responds with sensitivity and laments with them. He's weeping and, and fasting and praying to God on their behalf. And as we see, this isn't just a one-time prayer. Maybe if you just read this quickly through Nehemiah 1, think that he just prayed this once. But as you walk through this, you realize this is a regular prayer of Nehemiah, a pattern of prayer that, that he prays for months, actually, before he goes to the king to ask for permission to rebuild the wall. So as we, re, we begin this series in Nehemiah, we're going to cover just chapter 1. I just want to give you a heads up. The series will cover through the summer and go into the fall. So it'll be a long series as we go through these 13 chapters, but hopefully we'll get the whole gist of it as we walk through of this rebuilding and restoration that we'll see with God's people. So point number one, 
adoring the greatness of our God. Look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. What we see here right away is is, is Nehemiah is a student of the Bible, especially the writings of Deuteronomy. He knows his Bible. He knows the scriptures. And and this prayer shows us that Nehemiah's mind is saturated with, with God and with his word and what it says about God. And his prayer begins with God and it ends with God. And God is really throughout the whole chapter here, chapter one. And throughout this book, Nehemiah weaves in the teaching of of our God, and he gives us a clear doctrine of who God is. He will teach us that God is universally sovereign, that he is totally reliable, that he is utterly holy and compassionately merciful and uniquely powerful and infinitely gracious and intimately near and completely just. And Nehemiah's life as we will learn, is totally devoted to the God of the Bible. And he found delight in seeking God's face and revering God's name and pursuing God's will and acknowledging God's goodness and serving God's people and trusting God's power and confessing God's holiness and sharing God's word and showing God's love and remembering God's generosity and recalling God's faithfulness and obeying God's commands and encouraging God's servants to do the same. This book is a journal of the greatness of our God through the pen of Nehemiah, and Lord willing, will shape and define for us a clear and passionate view of who God is. The very God that Nehemiah served is the same God that we serve. And so when Nehemiah begins in verse 5, his prayer O Lord God of heaven, it's a graphic expression of the universal supremacy of the only true God. And he enters into this prayer, into the throne room of heaven, in the very presence of an awesome God, believing that he is not only powerful and sovereign, but God is holy. Like Moses in the desert, he hides his face before an awesome God. Like Isaiah in the temple, he confesses his need before an awesome God. Like Job, at the end of his book, an encounter with an awesome God brings him to a place of repentance. And we learn that the holiness of God is what identifies and exposes what sin is. And Nehemiah shows us right off the bat here in this prayer his adoration of God and God's awesomeness, especially in God keeping His covenant promises with His people. As I spent time thinking through this chapter, chapter 1 challenges us to know, remember, and pray our Bibles. He calls on us to remember God, to remember and listen to His prayers, to not only remember God and what He's done, but to listen to the prayers of other saints that have come before Him. See, His God is, is not like the deaf idols of other nations. His God is not dead. No, this God, this one He prays to, is very much involved in the lives of His people. And, and Nehemiah shows us this as he launches into this prayer. 
And he challenges us, I believe, to expand our prayers. Earlier prayers inspire present hope. And one of the ways that we can learn to pray with greater power and certainty is the study of prayers as one just like of Nehemiah and others. In fact, it might be good for you today to stop by the bookstall because there's a few books on prayer. One by J.C. Ryle, Do You Pray? That would challenge you in this. Or even better than that is The Valley of Vision, a book full of Puritan prayers, those that have lived hundreds of years before us that would stimulate and grow your time in prayer with God. And then pick up those books and add them to your, your normal study. See, what we see here, Nehemiah, is he's not just praying his prayers, he's going back into the Word, back to the prayers of others, of what they knew about God, and he prays that. And it was natural and immediate and even spontaneous, as we'll see in chapter 2 of his prayers. You know, it's been said that, that every person prays towards something or someone, everyone, everyone on earth. You either pray towards heaven or you pray towards the world. Our lives are made up of prayers for either for God to save and supply for us or for the world to save and supply for us. So the question is, who do you pray to? What we learn from reading the Bible is that self-sufficient people don't pray. They just talk to themselves. Self-satisfied people don't pray because they have no knowledge of their needs. Self-righteous people don't pray because there's no basis on which to approach God. Only God-focused, humble men and women who have a hunger and thirst for the glory of God will pray because they believe He will hear them and He will follow through. And so in this, in this prayer, Nehemiah begins with this adoration, this adoring of the greatness of God. Second, there's the confessing of sins to God. Catch with me in verse 6. Now I, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. So he has Nehemiah surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and, and present failure, he knew that he himself was not exempt from blame. He, he knew, and he includes himself as a great sinner, as well as everyone else in Judah. And so he prays in a way, involving himself in solidarity with the people of Israel. He, he recognizes that he himself is a sinner as well. See, sin was corporate, as well as personal. And, and Nehemiah, though he's not in Jerusalem, allies himself with his people in such a way that he includes himself as having sinned along with them. See, the, the real reason for the tragedy that they were facing now was their own sin. They were the cause of their problem here. And so the, the right response was to humble themselves and to confess that sin. 
Nehemiah knew that the people's frequently overlooked sins of omission were just as serious as the obvious sins of commission. Now, now what did I just say there? A sin of omission is a sin committed by willingly not doing something you should. We learn this from James 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's the opposite of the sin of commission, which is an act we know we shouldn't do and we do it anyways. Sins of omission almost always lead to sins of commission. And Nehemiah knew the seriousness of their sin. He knew that their sin must not be seen primarily as a a failure to meet a standard only, but a deliberate breaking off of personal relations to their God. He was sensitive to the fact that all sin, either things done blatantly or carelessly or things done selfishly or heedlessly undone, needed to be identified and needed to be acknowledged openly and it needed to be confessed and forgiven. And he knew that all such sins could be fully and immediately and eternally forgiven by their God. And he is teaching us that the Lord is always more eager to forgive our sins than we are eager to confess them. Usually, if we're honest, we want the blessings without the pain of confessing and turning our backs on our sin. We seem to be far more concerned about forgiveness than repentance. See, confession is saying the same thing about our sin that God says. But repentance is turning from sin and turning towards God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been here for weeks, months, even years, and and you're simply confused in why we talk about sin so much. Why, Why do churches talk about sin? Why do pastors get up and talk about sin? Why does the Bible talk about sin? I mean, you know you do wrong things, you you feel the twinge of guilt, but why is sin such a big deal? Sin is rejecting God's will. It's following our desires rather than God's desires. It's loving people and things more than we love God. All of this, all of these sins that we have done is serious because it separates us from God. It may not be as serious in your own eyes, but our Creator God thinks highly of our sin and our rejection of Him. And because God is fully just, He will bring us before Him one day to give an account of our lives. Friend, if you're here this morning and you you recall your sin with just a cool indifference, I pray that you would, and that God would change your heart about that. And pray that, that He would sovereignly move in your heart to change your indifference of your sin and change it to sorrow. 
and pray that you would begin to understand how morally bankrupt your sin leaves you. Friend, I plead with you this morning to examine yourself. Pray that God would give you eyes to see the truth about yourself. Pray that he would help you see and confess your sins of omission, those things that you ought to have done, but you didn't. And pray that he would help you see and confess your sins of commission, those things that you have done that you know were wrong. And then pray that he would grant you, as it says in the book of Acts, repentance unto life. Friend, if you want help discussing these things, today is the day to do that. Find the Christian friend that invited you today, or someone in your row, or, or find me, or another elder, so that we can discuss the, how you can find new life and peace in Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Because as Christians, our only hope is the one who had no sins of his own to cause him sorrow, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only sorrow for sins he ever knew was sorrow for your sins and for mine, and particularly for the sins he bore in his own death on the cross. And Peter wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. To my Christian friends here this morning, maybe you don't think much about sorrow and confession these days. Modesty seems outmodeled and humility seems ancient. Circumspection is a foreign word. Maybe you don't even know that word. And shame is rarely seen as a commodity, at least the shame for appropriate things. But I pray as, as Christians here that God would use us to help resurrect these ideas that should be very important to our culture. Can you imagine a culture with no modesty or humility, no sense of shame or responsibility? We're inching closer and closer to that now, aren't we? See, it's easy for us to lament that on Sundays and do nothing about it on Monday through Friday. We need to do our part as followers of Christ to resist this movement. And so at work, we, we exhibit modesty in our speech. And in speaking about yourself at home or with your friends, you model humility. In your homes, encourage your spouses and train your kids to be careful and circumspect, to examine, to be aware. Ask yourself, would anyone who knows me describe me as humble? Those working need to watch out for conceit in your own hearts and gently oppose it in your friends. Those climbing a corporate ladder, are you successful? Realize that even your most diligently pursued prizes come to you only by the grace of God. And as for your own heart, Christian, cultivate a godly sorrow for your sins. Consider God's grace by meditating on what you deserve for your sins and then contrasting that 
with which God has given you in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say to think about the gospel, to dwell in the gospel. It's to realize what we deserve for our sins and then believe afresh and anew what Christ has done for us in our sins. See, it's, it's hard to proudly defend your own rights when you realize that God has given you so much better than you really deserve. And so practice consistently confessing your sins to God. You won't surprise God by acknowledging what he knows already about you. But you will instruct yourself. You will teach yourself by God's grace and you will learn humility. One way to help you confess your sins to God is to confess your sins to one another, as the Scriptures say. Are you impatient? Confess that you're impatient to someone that you're impatient with. And don't say something of the effect, I'm sorry that you feel like I'm impatient with you. That's not a confession of sin. That's, it's their fault. But maybe not even that. Generally speaking, find someone with whom you would be ashamed to confess your sin and then confess your sins to them. As Christians, we, we need to learn how to be vulnerable and transparent because we are not well, wise, or honest enough to tend to our souls all by ourselves. Do you want to know how the church has gotten to a point where the church just thinks they're religious by their actions? They just know everything. They're just a bunch of hypocrites that people think it's because we've removed this as part of the Christian life. I can't go to another brother and sister in the Lord and confess my sins because what would they think of me? Friends, you're, you're living under illusion that somehow you don't sin. We all are. I'm sure the majority of us sinned on the way to church this morning. And so to combat that and to develop in us this life of transparency, not only to God but to one another, is to confess our sins to one another. And it's hard. And it's risky. But if we're helping one another, this is what discipleship is, by the way, we're helping one another to follow Jesus, we will live lives circumspectly of viewing ourselves, seeking to follow after him. I'm off script at this point. How easy is it for people to come to you and say, I've observed something in your life of sin? Is it easy for people to do that? Or do you have this wall up that as soon as they come, well, you're going to bite that hand? Is that what we want to be known for as Christians? I'm just preaching to myself as much as to you, friends. See, we need the church because we need people who will listen with patience and with grace. 
We need people who are forgiven of God so that they can listen with patience and grace. This is a safe place to grow in our walk with Christ and to learn what confession is. And so if you haven't stretched into that in your Christian life, I encourage you to do that. And yet Nehemiah here in this, this confession, it was open, not only of the people's sins and their disobedience to God, but his own. He says it, he he and my house, my father's house in verse 6, he recognizes that confession of sin must be followed with repentance and obedience. And if you're curious where the rest of that is, it's the rest of the book. And he repents for himself and for his people. And through his repentance, Nehemiah wants to represent the people in a way that will cause God to be merciful to them again. Christians are people who confess their sins, who repent of their sins, and seek to walk with God. So that's point number two. Point number three, thanking God for his faithfulness. Look at verse five again. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. And look at verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. When Nehemiah calls on God who keeps his covenant in verse 5, he's calling on God to do what he's already promised to do. So the fact that God keeps the covenant means that Nehemiah is asking God to do what God is committed to do. God not only keeps his covenant, but he also keeps steadfast love. And and, and God steadfastly maintains his devoted, faithful love to those with whom he has covenanted with. And so Nehemiah here is, is appealing to the God of faithfulness. He's remembering God's faithfulness, and he's appealing to him in his own commitment to his people. And the covenant between God and his people is like a marriage bond. The children of Israel were God's people just as God was their God, and he had pledged himself to them, and this now forms the basis of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer was based on God's word, God's promises before. Even though Nehemiah, like all of us, had to come before God empty-handed with nothing deserving the Lord's favor or even attention, he nevertheless did come. Nehemiah had learned And it was even learning the secret of powerful and effective prayer, which is to pray the promises of God. That's why I said earlier for us to spend time studying the prayers in Scripture. Again, in a very human term, he calls on God to remember the particular promise he had made to people in in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Write that down if you want to study that later today, especially verse 31. Nehemiah had a deep confidence in a God who never breaks his word, and by his nature, a God of mercy and grace. And Nehemiah never forgot who God is and what God is like. And so he prays to God and thanks him for his faithfulness to his covenant promises to his people. 
Then in verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. The word redeemed refers occasionally in the Old Testament to the payment of a price to redeem one from slavery. And how and when did this redemption happen? And how, when did it take place in her history? Well, see, throughout the prayer, Nehemiah has gone back into his Bible, into the writings primarily of Moses. So it seems like it's most plausible here to remind his people and to remind God of his redemption of his people when he rescued them from the nation of Egypt and their slavery. And he's calling on God now to remember how he's redeemed his people with a strong hand. And he forever has them. In the New Testament, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Earlier in John 17, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. You know, as fallen, anxious sinners, we have no limit in our capacity to give reasons for Jesus to cast us out of his presence. As humans, we are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love for us. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be pushed away, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense of that, given enough time. We, we, we think Jesus will eventually grow tired of me, and he's going to push me out. He's going to hold me at arm's length. I'll, I'll finally do enough where he's not going to want anything to do with me. And yet, God is faithful to us, and he's faithful to his word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. John Bunyan ministered to me this week in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Listen. He says, no, wait. We say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, Jesus says. You know most of it, I'm sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity deep down inside of me that's, that's hidden from everyone. I, I know it all. Well, well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, Jesus says. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Well, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. So you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're primarily against you. Well, then I'm the one most suited to forgive you. But the more of ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out.
See, we live in this world, and every human has a limit, usually. If we offend enough, if the relationship gets damaged enough, if we get betrayed enough, we're going to be cast out, and the walls go up. But friends, with Christ, our sins and our weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. Do you believe that this morning, Christian? Or are you struggling? Is the gospel powerful enough to not only save you, but keep you in relationship with God? See, God will be faithful to His promises to His children. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 119, 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. God is faithful to His word, and His faithful to His people. And with Nehemiah, we need to thank Him this morning for His faithfulness. See, when He saved us, it was for eternity, and He will keep His promises to us. God is faithful. Well, the last section of this prayer is the supplication of His needs to God that He asks. Verse 11, O Lord, let Your ear be attentive to the prayer of Your servant and to the prayer of Your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The last part is supplication, asking God to act and to supply for them. And, and Nehemiah is convinced if this plan of his will have any success, God will need to act. And so he prays and he asks. It was interesting in my study to find out this week that at least three to five months pass between chapter one and chapter two. So this prayer that we have gone through this morning is the prayer that Nehemiah repeats for three to five months. It wasn't just one prayer, as I said earlier. It was a continual outpouring of prayer before God. And all of this was leading up to him approaching the king. And in fact, he, he, it wasn't just his prayers. You see in verse 11, he involves others. Other servants prayed this. See, Nehemiah wasn't hamstrung on doing anything. No, prayer was his action. And I wonder how many of our actions or reactions or impulses before we go to prayer. Is prayer so much in our life the last resort when things get so bad that there's nothing else we can do? Have we ever thought through why prayer is the last resort for us? You need to understand also that Nehemiah here, and we'll get into more of this, especially in chapter 2, but Nehemiah was not a free agent at this point. He was employed by the king in the court of Susa, and he held a very high position in the kingdom, as he says here at the end of verse 11. The office of cupbearer sounds like a menial position for us today, but this wasn't the situation then. 
Now, the position of cupbearer came about in ancient societies because of the danger that, was co- that was, would come towards an emperor or a king that might be poisoned by people that are trying to attack. And so the, the cupbearer was a trusted person appointed to care for and taste the wine to make sure that it was safe before it was served to the king. You think your job's bad. A person in this position was highly trusted and esteemed in the kingdom. And it's, it's noteworthy that the Persians in the 5th century B.C. could place their complete trust in a Jewish cupbearer. I find that fascinating. I don't have time to dive into that. But Nehemiah was essentially the last line of defense to the king. And he's about to go to the king in chapter 2 for release so that he can reinstall the wall, which will be the first line of defense for his people. And so with the expression, this man here at the end of the prayer, Nehemiah shows the huge difference between his view of God as his true master and the Persian king that he works for. See, the eyes of the world, they saw the king was a very important person, a man of influence and power, and he simply could decide on life and death for anyone in the kingdom. But those two words, Nehemiah shows us who's truly in charge of life and death. This man. The king was just a man. And yet Nehemiah knows that this king is key to the plan that he's developing to help his people. And he knows that God is the one who can change a king's heart. And so he pleads for mercy. Because mercy is always optional for God. And Nehemiah is asking, in effect, that he might be used in some way to help the cause of the kingdom for God's people. And so, friends, to us in America, in a highly charged political landscape, we should listen to the words of Nehemiah and listen to the words of Hudson Taylor who once said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Do you believe that? This is why we pray for our leaders in our sphere of life here. Not because we agree with their politics, but because we're calling on God to change their hearts. Because we believe God is bigger than any person that's in charge here on earth. Well, friends, I need to end here. I often wonder as I was thinking through how to conclude this, um, that in our prayers, as we take the prayer of Nehemiah and then apply it to our life, how impatient we can become in our prayers. And we think uh, naively that it's essential for God to answer right away. But God doesn't function in our timetable. In fact, God isn't constrained by our clock at all. We live within a 24-hour day constrained by a schedule that we develop and we maintain, but God sees things from a perspective of eternity. 2 Peter 3.8, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And so in your prayers, we need to remind ourselves that God's time is perfect. He is never early or never late. Our job is to pray. And so let us pray. Let us follow a pattern here. If you're looking for something and and encouragement in your prayers, use Nehemiah's prayer. 
of adoring the greatness of our God. And then, and then we would humble ourselves and confess our sins to God. And that would send us back to Him, thanking God for His faithfulness, and then going to Him and asking for Him to supply all of our needs. And I hope, as a church, that we would be faithful in our prayers and that this book would be a blessing to us as we follow Him. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank You for this time that we could spend in Your Word, and we ask that You would crucify our selfishness upon the cross of Your love. God, I pray that we would be people of prayer. We pray that in Your love You would humble us, that You would bring Your Word deep into our hearts, and You would heal us. And we ask that as we leave this place and meditate on your scriptures, that you would do the work in our hearts for Jesus' sake and for your glory through your people. For we ask this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.